these are dangerous things. You know, he's playing with fire because if his supporters really perceive the election to be stolen, then it's hard to see why they wouldn't engage in kind of revolutionary violence to try to keep him in power. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Professor Benjamin Kleinerman, who teaches political science at Baylor University. His research focuses on the relationship between executive power and the constitutional order. Ben teaches classes on both political thought and political institutions, and has a number of books that are highly relevant to our times, including The Discretionary President, The Promise and Peril of Executive Power. Ben has launched a new outlet called The Constitutionalist, where he and other scholars publish essays about constitutional democracy. As we've been reminded by our experience with Trump, constitutions are sustained not only by law, but also by civil society and civic norms, and thus are not only a place for lawyers, but for political theorists. Ben's an interesting guy, and the constitutionalist is a good idea for this time, I think. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Professor Benjamin Kleinerman of Baylor. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Hi, Ben. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? I am Benjamin Kleinerman. I teach at Baylor University. I'm a R.W. Morrison Chair of Political Science. I got my PhD around 20 years ago at Michigan State. I taught most of my various places, but the last 10 years I've actually been at Michigan State's James Madison College. And just this year, went to Baylor from Michigan State. I work mostly on the presidency and on constitutional separation of powers kinds of issues. Find yourself in a pretty key spot in the last five years, say. Yeah. My first book actually was mostly in reference to the Bush administration. So I was, again, presidential power was the issue. It comes up often. It's, it's interesting. Where did you grow up? I grew up outside Marshfield, Massachusetts, which is near Cape Cod, on the way to Cape Cod, about 45 minutes from Boston and right next to Plymouth, Massachusetts. Were you a political family? What hooked you on politics as something to study? Yeah, I guess we were a political family. I mean, big part of my life growing up was talking about politics and arguing about politics with my parents in one way or another. I actually remember the first time my now wife met my family, we were driving somewhere and we had an extended 
political argument for the entirety of the drive and it was not something she was used to <laughs> she said that was intense <laughs> it's a good way to become an informed person i think yeah. what was college for you kenyan college in ohio oh yeah that that seems to produce a lot of people or attract a lot of people that are interested in politics yeah i think so it's got a great political science department i actually went there expecting to major in history and took this class called Quest for Justice, which was a class for freshmen and had no intention of, of majoring in political science, but loved the class and it hooked me into political science. And it's, My life's been different ever since. So. Well, what was it about that class or what did you learn that the Quest for Justice, it was a series of readings, Aristotle, basically through Nietzsche um, and a little past Nietzsche, series of readings all looking at how political philosophy has wrestled with questions of societal structure and even individual, the relationship between society and the individual, kind of interesting set of questions that I didn't even realize at that point that, you know, I could sort of think more systematically about these things. And so I was hooked. Yeah, I get it. Did you have jobs between uh, college and grad school or did you go straight in? I went straight in. You know, it's funny because now I tell my students they should take a year off or something if they're trying to decide whether to go to grad school. But I knew about my junior year in college, that grad school was the only place that really made sense for me. I wouldn't have been good at anything else in, in life. I spent four years in graduate school in political science myself and kind of came to the opposite conclusion that it wasn't the direction for me to be a professor, but I learned a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how, how has it been as a career? Oh, it's been fantastic. You know, I feel fortunate every day that I have the career I do. I get to do what I love as a job. What are you teaching currently? Right now I'm teaching um, a course called the American Constitutional Experience, which is required of all Baylor students, actually. And it's basically a course that looks at important constitutional moments throughout American history. So I did a, a section on the founding, a section on the Civil War, a section on the New Deal, and then I just got done. Um, actually, yesterday was the last class, and we were looking at the role of the judiciary in American politics now. Is that a big lecture? Yeah, 200 students. As you might imagine, given that the course is required of all Baylor students, they have to. It's interesting because there are nursing students and things like that in the course, people who wouldn't naturally have been attracted to political science. So it's an interesting challenge to try to get them interested in the course. Do you find them to be different, notably in the Trump era, your students, than before? Yes, I think... You know, everything's different in the Trump era in, in a way. I, I find just all of our politics are oddly 
you know, upside down. I, I just wrote a post for the blog about this. The what it means to be constitutionalist has turned upside down in, in, a, in a certain way. You know, I try to keep politics out of the class, so I'm never sure exactly where they stand, especially in a big class like this where I don't really get a chance to talk to them all all that much. It's all lecture, and it's on Zoom right now, so that makes it even more distant. I, I don't really have a sense of, of where they are politically and how they think about politics. From the little I've interacted with them, that most of them are anti-Trump, but then you have a couple of them that are really fiercely pro-Trump, you know, kind of mirror of the country. You wrote a book called The Discretionary President. What is the main point there? Hard to say briefly, or but what, what what's the subject and what are you trying to say? You know, it revolves or it arises from some of the questions in the Bush administration. It's more general than that, but I think in the first place, that's my jumping off point regarding what powers the president has, I mean, at that time, prerogative issues. You know, that is the extent to which the president can depart from the law in things like, in the Bush administration, torture of enemy combatants and these kinds of questions. So that's its jumping off point. And then I end up going through a lot of political theory and the American founding to try to think about what the place of executive power is in relation to the laws. And my general argument is essentially that we need to have discretionary presidential power, discretionary executive power, but we also need it not to be understood as legal. It has to always be understood as something outside the law or or something that's a potential threat to the rule of law. And thus that the problem with the Bush administration is that they were trying to legalize this power that's really necessarily or inherently extra legal, if that makes any sense. It does. It it seems like an incredibly difficult and nuanced area to really think about. There's sort of this assumption that the president is going to act in the best interest of the country. And if he or she is, then discretion makes sense. And if you have someone who isn't like that, which you're not supposed to get, it's tough. Then discretion becomes dangerous. There's no easy solution to the problem. My essential figure in the book in terms of thinking about how this can be done well is Lincoln, Lincoln's actions during the Civil War. So I spend two chapters on on the Civil War and on Lincoln's actions. And there you get, I think, a lot of use of executive power. I, you know, He pushed the limits, but he's also responsible and constitutional in, in a way in terms of how he thinks about these questions and isn't trying to just aggrandize his own power. But sometimes I was tempted to say, <laughs> we got lucky with Lincoln. It's not clear what the solution is when you don't have a Lincoln in power. In fact, I don't think there is an easy solution. In the news today, Flynn, former national security advisor, called on President Trump to suspend the Constitution, declare martial law, and run the election again. (laughs) I didn't see that. Did he really? Yeah. That's insane. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Which is 
would be quite a, a stretch in discretion. Yeah. No, I think that's not. I mean, actually, I, I just recently wrote an article. I think I published it in the, the Bulwark about it using Lincoln in reference. This was after Trump said he was going to postpone the election back in the summer. You know, that, that tweet he, he put out saying he was going to postpone the election. And I tried to show that as much as Lincoln stretched executive power during the Civil War, for him, the election was critical. You had to have an election because presidential power is only justified to the extent that the people can judge it. And if you start postponing that judgment or suspending that judgment, it becomes just monarchical power. It's no longer meaningfully constitutional in any sense of the word. So to suspend all processes and and call for a new election is to basically deny the people the ability, at least in that first occasion, to judge how you've used your power. So I think that's just inherently unconstitutional. I mean, at that point, it's just a coup, and the president doesn't have the power to... He has the power to exercise discretion, but he doesn't have the power to create a coup. You know, So I think there's... There'd be no constitutional justification for such a thing. But many countries, people wield power that they're not supposed to have. Yeah. 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 Whenever you know history and whenever you look at it in detail, there's always an example of something that someone pushed the limits before. Mm-hmm. And, and it's rare that anyone's doing anything truly new. Do you think that Trump has pushed constitutional norms pushed executive power in ways that are substantially different than someone else has done at some point along the way? Yes. So I just mentioned Lincoln's use of executive power during the Civil War. I think in a way, George W. Bush pushed executive power during his presidency. I think there are other presidents. FDR pushed executive power during his presidency. All of them, though, had respect for the processes of a constitution. That is, things like regular elections, things like understanding that there had to be a peaceful transition of power or a regular transition of power between one president and and another. Also, the generally presidential behavior, respect for the constitution and respect for one's critical place in the Constitution. Those things Trump has abandoned. He calls into question the processes, the typical constitutional processes. You know, the very fact that he's raising the question as to whether he'll leave. I can't think of any president who's ever done that before. His behavior as president, rather than behaving presidentially, he intentionally seems to behave unpresidentially, that is to tweet about things that presidents normally wouldn't talk about. And one of the things that struck me is, you know, he he ran obviously in 2016, a very unconventional campaign. One part of which was to act in ways you'd never seen presidents act before. I, given my work, I kind of expected him to flip a switch and to become more presidential 
once he got into office. And in fact, in the first State of the Union address he gave, he sounded and tried to behave more presidential. And then he just couldn't hold on to that. He decided to go back to tweeting crazy things and behaving in erratic ways. That's, I think, relatively new. I mean, this isn't to say that all presidents have actually behaved presidentially, but I think they've all aspired to behave presidentially. And Trump seems almost intentionally to not aspire to do that. It feels to me like Nixon is the closest we came before to some of these things. I think so. Although, again, I think Nixon pushes the envelope, but he doesn't try to break the envelope. (laughs) Most of what he did was secret, which is obviously problematic, but I think Trump kind of intentionally embraces a public rhetoric of disrespect for the constitutional order. And that's in some ways more dangerous even than doing it secretly, because it sets a precedent for the people that you don't have to have respect for a constitutional order. You know, if you think about it, everything in a constitutional order depends on a kind of respect for certain norms. If you don't have that respect for certain norms, then everything becomes a question of who has the most power. The reason why third world countries have such difficulty with transitions is I think at a fundamental level, they often don't have respect for the norm that when one president gets voted out of office, that president is replaced by a new president and there's a transition. If there's not respect for that, then it becomes a question of which side the army is going to be on. Is the army going to side with the transition to the new leader or are they going to side with the prior leader you know so if trump refused to leave office that that would be the question in the united states would in a certain way would they take him out of the white house escort him out of the white house if he were to follow flynn's advice that strikes me as the question the next question yeah i spent i don't know the four years that we've had him in office highly concerned as many people did and i spent election day kind of trying to control my emotions because I so much wanted to win this one. And then as soon as, you know, it became clear it's Biden, I started to worry about 2024 because I care about this country. And it seems like there's a threat here to the way we're organized that is, I think the word you use dangerous is the right word. There's something super scary about what might happen. The kinds of rhetoric that Trump is using about the stolen election, I mean, this long rant he gave at the presidential podium in the White House about a stolen election, these are dangerous things. You know, he's playing with fire because if his supporters really perceive the election to be stolen, then it's hard to see why they wouldn't engage in kind of revolutionary violence to try to keep him in power. Again, we're so used to a peaceful politics in the United States. Thank goodness. 
Yeah, <laughs> we've never had these questions, but these are real questions. You know, democracies have always had this question. And so when George Washington or John Adams gave up power to his opposition and gave up power to Thomas Jefferson, that's a victory for democracy, a victory that we've replicated again and again, except at the beginning of the Civil War. To call that into question and to either threaten not to leave or to imply to your supporters that your victory was stolen from you, your rightful victory was stolen from you, that's revolutionary. It's hard to see why his supporters wouldn't think there was a revolution, that the election itself was a takeover by an opposition that had no legitimacy, and thus that they have the revolutionary right to try to restore the rightful leader. There's a kind of inherent logic to that, too, for his supporters that I really worry they're going to follow through on. And I think polling seems to reflect at least first response from people is, you know, a lot of Republicans do think this was a stolen election because the president tells them it was. Yeah. And he's been engaging in this rhetoric from long before the election, you know, he was intending to make a mess of it, I think. Well, he sort of played a little bit of that game before the what he thought was going to be the loss to Hillary, I think. And then he started again this summer preparing for his voter fraud charges. Yeah. I mean, just it's hard to see what the end game is for him is except to try to motivate his his followers into a revolution. I mean, I, or maybe he just doesn't realize the kind of fire he's playing with. Because if he realizes the fire he's playing with, then it's extraordinarily irresponsible on his part. I can't stress enough how irresponsible it would be, because you're basically inciting violence from your your, your followers. It's hard to know. I mean, like Mary Trump says said that thing about he's the only person she knows who can gaslight himself. And so I can't tell whether he just prides himself in sort of being tough, being the kind of guy who will bring Clinton accusers to the debate and be so sordid or, you know, hit an opponent hard as he likes to think of it verbally, even if it's a complete lie. I can't tell if it's a game or he's delusional. My read on it is that he thinks it's a game. He thinks he's on a reality TV show, and at some point, the show ends and he goes home. I don't think he's aware enough of how a regime works to understand the kind of fire he's playing with. So his understanding of himself would be that he's trying to refuse to leave as a loser. You know, the more he can fight this, the more it look, and the more it looks like the election was stolen from him, the less of a loser he looks. And so, whereas most candidates or all candidates have given a concession speech where they accept the transition of power to the, the candidate who won, a concession speech to him would imply that he lost. And, you know, on the reality TV show he's playing, he, he can't lose. So, yeah, in that way, I just don't I don't think he realizes how irresponsible he's being. I mean, it feels like 
it would have helped him to take a quest for justice and the American constitutional experience and, and a few of these things, if he could concentrate for long enough. No, I think so. During the Republican primary, there was a, at some point in one of the debates, the question came up as to the judiciary and how it was ruling. And he said, he said something, who was he blaming? Oh, George W. Bush for his nomination of John Roberts. And the accusation he, he made was that Roberts voted wrong. And it was as though the Supreme Court is a place where they just vote. You know, there's nine justices and five vote one way and four vote the other and that's it. You know, so then whatever issue it is, there's just a voting process. And it, it was sort of a profoundly – and I don't think he meant it jokingly or even meant it glibly. I think he really doesn't understand how the process just the way he expect he seems to expect that his attorney general will act in his best interest uh, right yeah yeah that that's a similar he has no understanding of what the difference between his personal interests or personal interest and regime interests that the political order he presides over is just for him he's the ceo of it not that there's a distinctions between what he's doing in serving the people and his own power. I think an illustration of that is the end of the Republican convention being at the White House in a certain way that made him look like he owned the White House. Not that the president serves at the people's pleasure in the White House, but that he's the owner of the White House and that so he can celebrate or prepare for his victory in his house. Yeah. Doesn't that feel like a deliberate move to do that rather than a lack of understanding? I think the decision to end the Republican convention at the White House was a deliberate move. In that case, I think it was a deliberate move. He wanted to leverage the power of the office into his own power in running for re-election. I mean, what do you make of people who do understand the constitutional order like Mitch McConnell or other you know, Republican senators going along with these slights to the Constitution? There's an article in the website that I'm editing by... Professor George Thomas at um, Claremont, who's actually making precisely that argument. That is that the real blame here is as much with the Republican Party as it is with, with President Trump. Because if the Republican Party were to stand up fully against Trump, then it changes things pretty dramatically. They could have taught him what lines were in a way that the Democrats can't. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, there have been some exceptions to this. Mitt Romney has stood up to Trump, even as a Republican, in a way that other... Or the Secretary of State of Georgia, or someone on a election board in Michigan. Or I mean, you know, because in the case of what he's asking these election board people to do, that's often simply illegal. 
they talk to lawyers about it clearly. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. I I live in Michigan, and though they, what Trump was asking them to do, they realized they could actually be put in jail for. <laughs> so it's not something they could just do because the president told them to. So you've been alluding a couple times to your new website, um, and which is what came to my attention and thought might make sense to invite you to chat. It's called The Constitutionalist. What was missing out there that you thought it's time to start another site for political discourse? You know, this abstracts from the Trump question and just goes to a more general question. I tend to think that constitutional questions in the last 20 years or so have fallen too much to the lawyers and not enough to the, I'll say, constitutional theorists. That is that when you look at other sites and other arguments, the question often is adjudicated by lawyers, and the question they're asking is, what do the, does the text of the Constitution mean? What does this necessary and proper clause mean, and how does it apply to this law? Which is all necessary, but I don't think it really captures... And proper. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it doesn't really capture what a constitution is, you know, uh, because a constitution is as much about forming a regime as it is about setting or creating a set of laws. The kinds of questions that we've just been talking about, like whether Trump will leave office at the end of his term. There's a legal answer to that question, but the legal answer, I'd say, is different than the constitutional answer, because the constitutional answer concerns how important it is that this happen. You know, and so I think as a constitutional theorist, you can talk about things like the tenuousness of certain constitutional norms and the extent to which they need to be respected. Those are the kinds of questions that we're asking in this in this website. It's hard because in the Trump era, everything, there's either the few pro-Trumpers or there's everyone else. And what's interesting is all the way back to the never-Trumpers during the first Republican primary, there's a lot of Republicans who are anti-Trump, or there's some Republicans, especially in the intellectual world, who are anti-Trump. All of this is to say that I just wrote a post actually about this on the website. Right now, the site is going to seem very liberal um, or seem liberal. I don't know if very liberal is the right word, but seem liberal because we're insisting on the Constitution over and against Trump or insisting on constitutional norms over and against Trump. But I think subsequent to this, you'll see more dialogue between two opposing sides on big constitutional questions. The site included two professors with differing positions on the question of whether court packing has precedential constitutional, whether there's a precedent in the constitutional order for court packing. What I want the site to do is raise questions like that and have different constitutional scholars take differing positions on that. So you get a kind of discourse, an intelligent discourse about big questions. It's more difficult to do that. In the case of Trump, it's hard to find anyone making a 
intelligible and sensible Trump argument. So, I mean, it sounds like a fun project. It's like the analog of launching a new journal, right? Yeah. It's a lot easier to do that nowadays. What did it take to put it together? Do you have to just make a few phone calls and emails or what's organizing this and what are, what are your plans going forward? Yeah, if only it were just a couple of... I've actually been... <laughs> <laughs> that would have been a lot less work than, than it's been. It's been, let's see, I think two or three years in the working as I had to get funding for it. The Jack Miller Center you know, has given us funding, but it took a while to go through those processes. The Jack Miller Center is a center on teaching Americans, America's founding principles and history. They're dedicated to kind of that project, you know, so they support mostly professors who do that in one way or another as a way of trying to restore our understanding of and respect for the constitution and for principles of, of America more generally. Um, what's interesting, and I, I said this in the post I just wrote, is I think in a typical time that's not Trump-oriented, the Jack Miller Center would be seen as very conservative, or at least somewhat conservative. Because of the oddness of the Trump era, a project like theirs seems almost liberal because it's insisting on the constitution over and against a figure who has no respect for the constitution. That used to be the story conservatives gave about progressives, you know, that they didn't have sufficient respect for the constitution and they were insisting on the constitution over and against that. The new world, if you call yourself like a constitutionalist, it sounds like you're kind of sounds like you're a liberal and so anyway, that's that's a long way of going <laughs> far afield from your question. But yeah, so it took it took several years to go through the processes of convincing them to to support the blog or support the website. And then I had to get the contributors on board and try to put together a solid team of contributors, then go through the process of getting my university to handle the money coming in, so to speak. And um, and then the last couple of weeks has been trying to get the website right. I have a, a woman who's a graduate student at Baylor who's been helping me with that process, but it's hard to get websites organized and make sense. And so I've spent a lot of time on this project, and a lot, especially the last couple of weeks. So. Does the Jack Miller Center have any sway over what content they've given me just a kind of block grant of money and the money comes through Baylor in a way that makes me independent of them at least as as long as the money keeps persisting i suppose if they were really dissatisfied there might be a concern but on the whole i'm completely independent in what what i put up and what i don't how long of a runway do you have? I guess the money just comes in for the next year. But there's a kind of implicit promise to extend it past a year. I think once I have it, I can get more support from other other sources. So. What were you looking for when you were finding the contributors to put on board? 
all the other contributors are people I've known for a long time and whose work all revolve around questions of constitutionalism broadly understood. And, you know, Professor Tulis, Jeff Tulis, who's the, has influenced my own intellectual development tremendously. So, you know, the fact he was willing to, to do this was quite a coup for me or quite a thrill for me. I think all of them have published op-eds in the places like the New York Times or the Washington Post. So they have some kind of public standing, even as professors. We don't typically have much of a public standing, but these the contributors have done this a little before and have a, a bit of name value, which I was looking for as well. So I wanted to be something other than just unknown professors writing about constitutional issues. I, I wanted to find people who have done this publicly in some way or another. Greg Weiner, who's one of the contributors, I kid him that the New York Times has apparently become his personal publishing house. He's gotten several op-eds recently in, in the Times. I talked to Professor Tulis on this show, and he's definitely affected by the Trump era in a way, I think, politically that that and he's been writing a lot. He's been very active. Another person that I talked to that I didn't see on your list is Corey Brettschneider. Oh, yeah. Who yeah. has this book about the oath in the office about what presidents should know about the Constitution. Seems like it's in the same area. Yeah. No, I actually was, I guess, Facebook messaging with Corey Brettschneider yesterday. I'm trying to convince him to write an article for the constitutionalist. Uh, he's working on a book right now on the presidency. Yeah, I'm trying to finish a book finally on the presidency. This website doesn't help that process, <laughs> finishing a book. <laughs> well, what do you hope the constitutionalist turns into over time? I hope it turns into a kind of serious forum for talking through these big constitutional issues and their implication for current politics. Again, professors are good at talking about these things on a theoretical level that might be vaguely applicable to current politics. But one of my aims in this website, for better or worse, was to use current politics, actual current politics, in a way that makes it in dialogue with the big constitutional issues. And that's what I hope the website can do, can contribute to our current political discourse by adding historical and theoretical perspectives that we as professors know more about, I guess. There's not much of a forum for that. Yeah. Who do you hope your audience to be then? I mean, I guess if I were a political theorist working on the Constitution, I would want the president to read it or the people around him, you know, or, uh, you know, the people who are making decisions. But who, who are you looking for to be reading this? Yeah, I mean, if if politicians or the president would read this, that would be tremendous. If that happens, it's, it's great. I'm also looking for, you know, I always use uh, my father's a kind of intelligent reader and thinker about politics. And whenever I write something, I always 
ask myself, would my father understand what I'm talking about? And if the answer is yes, I feel like I've succeeded. That is, I want the intelligent lay person to be able to follow the arguments. That makes sense. I don't know. It seems like a, a really worthy project. Is there a question about it that I didn't ask that I should have? No, I think you covered most of it. I'm, I don't. I can't think of anything. So, well, I wish you a lot of luck with it. I think I'll be reading it. If people are interested in the material there, what other sites do you think they also ought to be reading? Jeff Toulis writes for the public seminar, I think it's called. I don't follow that that website very much, but I, he speaks well of it. The Bulwark, he he and Laura Field, who are both both regular contributors, have been writing for that. The Bulwark is an interesting illustration of how odd things are in the Trump era, because Bill Kristol, who was fairly disliked by the, the left during um, the Bush era, is the editor of the Bulwark, and the Bulwark now sounds very liberal, you know. So the fact that Bill Kristol now sounds like a liberal says much about what the Trump era politics look like. I think Law Liberty is the the name. They they tend to be kind of vaguely libertarian in their leanings. So to the extent that's a good website. Uh, you know, now that I think about it, there aren't. A lot of websites that are dependably broad and constitutional in the way that my site is. So that's <laughs> that's why this site is unique. It's very cool. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you so much. That was Benjamin Kleinerman, professor at Baylor. He's at theconstitutionalist.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.